0: So, so all of this, the, the uncertainty, the high stakes, right, it becomes something that I call post-normal fiction. The argument is that there's this graph and one axis is stakes and the other axis is uncertainty. And If you get far enough out on either one of those axes, or you've got a, like a good amount of both, you get into this space, you leave pure research, you pass through applied science, you pass through this professional consultancy sphere where scientists are called upon to advise in a neutral way policymakers. And you get out into this space called post-normal science where kind of fundamentally, you're dealing with these wicked problems that there's no way to experiment your way into the correct answer. That's what I tried to do in my imagination In this book, but we can't do that in a scientifically rigorous way. But the argument is that you're still doing science when you're out there in this um, zone of high uncertainty and high stakes. Uh, And you still have to think like a scientist, but you have to do it with a a different set of strategies that I I think we should talk. We should think about science fiction, not as fiction about the future, Mm -hmm. but as a fiction that speculates using a, a, a theory of social change that is driven by science and technology development, right? Where you pick up, we you know, the stories are based around inventing a new thing or discovering a new scientific principle and then playing out the ramifications in society. We're in an imagination battle. <laughs> um, yeah. And that it, it's not the only um axis of of conflict, right? It's not the the thing. They're very material, economic, political forces that have very little to do with just, you know, how people with people's imaginations uh, that have a big, you know, influence on on where we go with this stuff. I'm Andrew Dana Hudson. I am a speculative fiction writer and sustainability researcher, a few other things. And my uh, new book, Our Shared Storm, A Novel of Five Climate Futures, is uh, fresh off the presses from Fordham University Press.
1: This is the Near Future Laboratory podcast, episode 36, and I'm still your host, Julian Bleeker. This conversation is with author, researcher, futurist, Andrew Dana Hudson, whose novel, Our Shared Storm, A Novel of Five Climate Futures, just recently came out. We get into his novel, its unique design and structure and the role of science fiction in shaping our imagination about change and possibility, or I should say climate fiction, and this curious concept of what he refers to as post-normal science and post-normal fiction. I found this really interesting. And it's just one thing I want to flag in my little preamble here. The gist of this notion is that there are a set of wickedly hard problems and then super wickedly hard problems that the old fashioned way of working through problems just doesn't work, doesn't apply. The challenge with these sorts of problems is, as I somewhat naively understand them, is that there isn't necessarily one solution and there may not be a solution in the sense of normal science or normal ways of thinking about the world. You're not gonna solve it. You're gonna maybe mitigate, you're gonna work around it, you're gonna understand it as just maybe not even a, uh, a problem in the sense of the uh, the old fashioned sense of the word, so you need a different approach, different set of tools, techniques, even kinds of people, trying to address mitigation tactics, which implies a whole different mindset. And as I've been thinking about this idea, it, part of me just sort of felt that something like design fiction, and related approaches, is particularly well suited to these kinds of problems, where you're not looking for. a a solution, you're not looking for a prediction about what will be or you're not looking for a definitive answer um, but you're looking for more to make sense of what's going on. Uh, We do design fiction projects that are driven largely as really creative approaches more than trying to provide an answer or solve a problem. Design fiction, much like prose fiction, purposely ambles through a world to open up rich meanings where previously there were none. Design fiction is not analytic, and for many analytic sorts like you know spreadsheets and MBA kinds of folks, that proves challenging, which I totally get and I totally understand. And sometimes I feel a little bit of anxiety that we're not offering a kind of analytic pathway. The, the, the methodology is, is, is very uh, open. The methodology is de- developed and discovered as the project unfolds. We don't know what we're going to do until we sort of work through uh, the the actual work. We, we start figuring things out, and things start starting to appeal to us that we can translate into these other materialized forms, which often uh, aren't ever just a uh, you know like a report or, or, or a summary or a table of of, of possible uh, approaches to things and determined outcomes these sort of more analytics sorts want to know what decisions to make in order to meet this quarter's numbers, or they want to know what the KPIs are for the project, and uh, it, it's just not the way design fiction works. So I get all that stuff, but it's not what we do, nor how we do it. I'd say in this context, from what I'm feeling based on this conversation with Andrew, which is still very fresh, we are, near future laboratory, uh, somewhat post-normal. Like we did, we just, we're just not gonna go about doing futuring work in a uh in in the traditional kind of way that was derived from you know the 60s and 70s scenario-based planning approach so that's what i got to say about that just a reflection and i i think there are interesting ways in which it can be coupled with the the more traditional futuring approaches which is something that i'll have more to say about in the future okay um 15 seconds of housekeeping if you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast please, please, please go to Apple Podcast and do so now. It really helps out. Also, uh, consider supporting the podcast on patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. Every little bit is a reminder that this has some value and that you're keen to show as much with as little as $8 a month. Thank you for listening, and thank you even more for becoming a patron. If you want to learn more about how Near Future Laboratory can work with you and your team, just reach out. Easiest way is to email me, julian at nearfuturelaboratory.com. Okay, so now onto my conversation with Andrew Dana Hudson. Do you consider yourself in any way kind of operating as a futurist?
0: Yeah, I definitely have that, some of that skill set in my repertoire. Sometimes I put it on my website. It's funny, I, I got a review uh, of my book in Strange Horizons where, um, the, the reviewer, who was mostly pretty complimentary about the book, took issue with the fact that I had put Futurist on my website, which mm-hmm. I had done like a month before he'd, he'd visited. And so for me, it was like, wow, this guy really thinks I make a lot more money and work for a lot more evil corporations than I do. What do and,
1: um, you think was going on there, just, just to point at, or I don't know if he was picking at it in a kind of pejorative way. Like you think it was a little bit of like, who does this guy think he is? Cause he yeah. has like, a kind of comes preloaded with a lot of baggage presumption. And-
0: I, I guess it does. Right. I guess, I guess there are some folks who feel like that term um, implies a particular relationship with mostly with capital, right? Like with uh, corporations mm-hmm. that, are often hiring professional futurists. Right. And, and I don't know if that critique is necessarily bad when you serve uh capital, even in this, this kind of, I guess, uh, I don't know, court <laughs> astrologer kind of way, you you know, you're still, um, your, your judgments are a little warped by, I don't know who, who's paying your bills. Right. I mean, everyone's judgments are warped by who's paying their bills. Um, and or who's not paying the bills, right? Um, so, but for me, it was funny because this is a, you know, this is sort of a, a, a just one of several ways that <laughs> I have tried to, um, I guess, frame and, and pitch uh, what I do and offer as an intellectual to uh, both to my myself. <laughs> And uh, to, you know, different groups and clients and and people that might be interested in uh, paying me to write some fiction or to do some other kinds of thinking, right? Because, I mean, I I love writing fiction, but it's not sort of the only, it's not the only way that I I try to approach futures thinking. Um, And, you know, futures thinking is, I think the main way that I personally do sense making about about the world, right? Some people make sense of the world via history. Some people make sense of the world via, um, you know, all, all, you know, economics or, or politics, right? I mean, all these things are entangled, but, um, for me, futures thinking is kind of the one that, uh, has, has, I think for really my whole life been, um, a way of, of, uh, in the, the sort of core methodology. And some of that is writing fiction and some of that is just kind of having a science fictional mindset.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: We're in an imagination battle. <laughs> um, yeah. And that it, it's not the only um, axis of, of conflict, right? It's not the, the thing that's, you know, there's a very, they're very material, economic, political forces that have very little to do with just, you know, how people, with people's imaginations, uh, that have a big, you know, influence on, on where we go with this stuff, but we are also locked in in a a struggle to see clearly what is happening and, and imagine that, uh, something, uh, other than, the twentieth century style modernity is both possible and and uh and acceptable and even preferable.
1: Yeah. It's a that's a that's a big theme um for a lot of people and, and definitely for me is is just the uh the importance of the imagination and also just the kind of systemic inability to imagine broadly and and um sort of operationally like imagine possibility imagine change but then also uh, obtaining that you know the conclusion of that change in some way so more so not not just fantasizing i guess i don't know if that's the right way to describe it but imagination as a as a as a, as a mechanic of action
0: yeah one of the uh, one of the ways that i i think of it is we can do a little bit uh, more than what science can do in terms of an, anticipating very specific situations and problems, right? You know, if you go to a scientist, a scholar, like someone who, who kind of has to, um, who, who's, you know, bread and butter is not making stuff up and you ask them, are we likely to see, you know, X outcome or Y outcome next year? Uh, you know, they can give you sort of like a prediction, um, that's probably going to be pretty decent depending on, you know, how hard the question is. And then if like, okay, well, if we, if we got X outcome, are we like, what's the next coin flip? Right. And what's the coin flip after that? Right. And there's only so many coin flips you can go before you, um, you know, having heads come up 10 times, it's like very unlikely. Right. Um, and so it's, it's hard to say something about that. From a scientific perspective because it's just such a niche possibility. It's just so um it's it's just so particular. But it's very easy to write a story about that where you're just like holy crap I flipped heads a hundred times and like this is the, the world that I ended up in as a result or you know I flipped heads 50 times and I flipped the tails another 50 times. And so that like really swerved and here we are. And here's the very particular problems that this arrangement that we've, we've landed on this particular set of coin flips um, has produced in, in our society. And I think that that can be useful, right? Like it can allow us to um, start to you know, it's not so useful as a predictive mechanism, right? Like, um, but it is useful as as a kind of um, giving us sort of points in the possibility space that can be kind of guiding stars, right? To, that where it can be like, oh, well, if, if things do happen to go this way and then that way, well, we end up here and we should, we can prepare for that possibility today in these kinds of ways, right? Or uh, we should really swerve, make sure we go that way because we, it doesn't look like it now, but if things were to go this way, which seems fine from where we are, actually, we end up in a bad situation. Right. So, sorry, that was very abstract, but (laughs) hopefully you can, you can kind of see this playing out a little bit. Um, And I think there are some, you know, this is a little bit what some like professional futurists do, right. Where that they'll help companies and firms and, and other kinds of, of institutions, uh, ask like, what might their, the challenges be in, in, you know, particular, uh, scenario. This is why they like scenarios, right? Because it gets particular as opposed to putting the burden on you to predict the future, which is impossible. Right. Um, And, you know, whenever, whenever we, I, I, you know, all good science fiction is really just about the present, right? Um, From a literary standpoint. And uh, I think all useful futurism uh, doesn't really try to tell you like, here's what's going to happen. It tries to to, uh, help you make sense of the possibility space
1: and is that what is that are you, are you describing futurists as doing that as making sense of things as a, or or predicting things
0: but i think i mean i'm sure there are futurists out here is like i can i can predict for you you know what turn the market is going to take but for the most part i think uh that kind of work has at least the parts that i find interesting are about the sense making right It's it's using these things as as seeing instruments and stories are one kind of seeing instruments, just like a, a futurist quadrant, right? Uh, one of those graphs is, or, um, a kind of, you know, there's, there's trend casting and then there's back casting, right? There's all these different ways you can go. You can, you can imagine a weird possibility and then figure out how, how we might get there. Um, and I think all of these are, are kind of, useful tools to to engage in because uh, and to, to pick up and, and play with because we're you know the stakes of, of uh, our imagination just like everything else are are higher right the stakes of all of our kinds of choices are higher. so it's an imagination battle and, and we need to be able to see the terrain really well.
1: Yeah how do you want your work in particular to operate? there's one passage here. Climate fiction is part of a larger discourse around the power of stories and fiction to shape the human imagination and the power of imagination to shape politics and public policy. So that, that the first part, the shape human, the human imagination, that kind of, it feels like it fits within just a general kind of, uh, a, a hygienic understanding of the value of literature, of the value of the arts—it's it's meant to be expansive of the imagination, help you think about other things, see the world slightly differently, um, luxuriate in the exquisite potential of human creativity, and so forth and so on. And then you jump—you know—then almost then then we're on the other side of the of the of the brain, I guess, to the more analytic, like shape politics and public policy is are you, is is what what is your hope for i guess your work but then also this the idea of speculative fiction which is essentially what you're talking about uh in the afterward
0: well i think it's a tool right um and hopefully it, it's a uh, hopefully it's one that that's useful, right. To, to the people and, and institutions that are, are making decisions. Right. I mean, you know, like Stan Robinson didn't write ministry for the future because he just thought like, you know, that combination of words sounded nice, right. Like he's, he is like making a direct pitch to bankers and world leaders and uh, you know, everyone who is, has some measure of, of power. Um, and you know my, my book is not quite the same. There's a little bit, like at the end, I've got this utopian scenario that's full of kind of little pitches and, and tries to, um, I guess, give you a sense of the, the smell and taste and, and pace of uh, a kind of post-capitalist Green New Deal built future. Um, I, I guess one thing I wanted the book to do was to illuminate some of the culture of the cop to people who don't get to go, right?
1: I thought you did a wonderful job of that. It's like you know, there are points where I was like, okay, I, I can feel what it would be like there.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very you know unique space that is very exclusive. You know, I mean, tens of thousands of people go every year, but but given that this is. They're making decisions that are going to affect every single person on the planet and possibly determine whether or not human beings can continue to exist as a civilization um, in a meaningful way you know that that is a tiny fraction of of the stakeholders right that that get to experience and, and be a part of that so i wanted to bring some of that to life Uh, I wanted to kind of critique the SSPs as a tool, right. Um, and use that to, you know, the, you use that to hopefully, um, I guess, dust off some of the, the blandness of, uh, that can sometimes settle on some of these academic, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, frameworks, right. That we use to, to structure our thinking. Um, you know, I think, I think speculative fiction in general, there's, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone that they, they need to be writing stuff to save the world. Right. I don't think stories can save the world on the, on their own. I think they're probably necessary, but they're definitely not sufficient. One piece of one, like one bucket of culture making in, in what needs to be a tidal wave. And that tidal wave needs to be part of a huge needs to be one facet of a huge earthquake that, you know, of, of us sort of changing our society. Um, maybe I shouldn't use a disaster metaphor to talk about uh, this, but I'm just trying to get it at scale. It needs to be this massive mobilization across all these different sectors and stories have a, a part in that right like artists and and culture makers of all of all types uh and there's there's a stakes to that are kind of high to the the culture we make and also we don't know uh even more than the average sort of bit of sci-fi right mm-hmm. we don't know if if what we're writing is going to really reflect the reality is really going to uh Put forth the, the you know the right ideas or uh, help people get to the right way of thinking about this. It's going to be inspiring and and useful, right? Because I mean, one of I guess one of the points of, of the book is that it's not just about acting on climate change, right? The degree of action and also just the the tenor of action matters a lot, right? The the flavor of it. Are we acting via uh, the via sort of public goods-based institutions, or are we acting via capitalist institutions? Are we uh, mitigating our emissions in a way that um, deepens equal- inequality, or are we using that as an opportunity to to sort of broaden? prosperity and and uh undo some of the the gulfs between the the really rich and the really poor right these are all uh there's not just gonna it's not just oh we we uh build a lot of solar panels right it's like who owns the solar panels who gets rich off them how is the value created by the those solar panels going to be distributed right because like you know a solar panel sits there and soaks up uh Soaks up photons for forty years or so, and generates, you know, like ten times the the panel's value or something like that in electricity. Um, Some some people even claim that like it doesn't right. There's there's arguments that uh, uh, the the production of solar panels. Is still sort of like a net negative like energy loss. I don't think that's that's correct. I think that's wrong, but you know, there are all these debates about like just how much value is generated. And like any value, you know, like someone, any kind of surplus, someone gets that surplus, right? It's distributed in some way. So, you know, you put solar panels on your roof, does that go to you, right? Or does that, or are you part of kind of a, a neighborhood collective? Or maybe your solar power is coming is owned by the city, by the state, by federal government. Maybe it's owned by Elon Musk, right? I mean, there's some of the um, some of the solar stuff that he's had his fingers in are kind of about wanting uh, to rent every rooftop in America and use that space to uh, you know accrue this this massive value um, by providing electricity and you know, we, we, we want to put the solar panels up there, but uh, there's just still like lots of different choices to be made along the way. And so I wanted the book to kind of highlight those choices and make it palpable that um, we got to act on climate change, but the the different ways that we do can um, and the different ways that we might not can, can have different sort of flavors and outcomes. So, so all of this, the, the, uncertainty the high stakes right it becomes something that i call post-normal fiction
1: yeah i want you to talk about that
0: yeah there's this term that i learned studying sustainability called post-normal science Mm -hmm. and the the argument that what sustainability as a discipline is trying to do is different from laboratory science right where you go and you like run an experiment And maybe you run that experiment like 10 times so that, and then you like get this data and it's all very, it's like pure research and the results of the experiment don't really have a big impact on people's lives, but the results of decisions about sustainability do. And you're not in a lab, you're out working on systems that people live in and affect people and especially ecosystems and non-human beings and our, our climate. The argument is that there's this graph and one axis is stakes and the other axis is uncertainty. And if you get far enough out on either one of those axes, or you've got a, like a good amount of both, you get into this space, you leave pure research, you pass through applied science, you pass through this professional consultancy sphere where scientists are called upon to advise in a neutral way, policymakers. And you get out into this space called post-normal science, where kind of fundamentally you're dealing with these wicked problems that there's no way to experiment your way into the correct answer. And in fact, it's not even clear that there is a correct answer, right? It's more about winners and losers, and values are in dispute. And you only get one shot, right? Like we don't have a, we don't have a whole bunch of earths to run different climate transition scenarios on to try to figure out what the best path is. Right. That's what I tried to do in my imagination, right? In this book, but we can't do that in a scientifically rigorous way. But the argument is that you're still doing science when you're out there in this, um, zone of high uncertainty and high stakes. Uh, and you still have to think like a scientist, but you have to do it with a, a different set of strategies. And so I kind of think that this is a little bit what we're doing when people write climate fiction, right? That uh, we are writing stories that are not just trying to be stories, they're not just there for some kind of aesthetic uh, and, uh, purposes and are not just there to feed a market, but are there to try to like, inform and influence and, and inspire and, um, shape, you know, not just our readers, but also the actions, the behavior, the the readers have on the world. Um, and that there's a, so there's stakes of that. It's very uncertain. Um, the values are in dispute, but kind of nonetheless, it's clearly an important, uh, Category of culture making that we need more of, and that we need really good, thoughtful work in.
1: Yeah, so we need more of the the post-normal fiction. Yeah, because they, it's it's a way of it's, it's a way of running through these kind of wicked and super wicked problems, or, or imagining what they what outcomes might be in, in lieu of what applied science, low decision stakes, low system uncertainty is able to provide. Because whatever, Google, they've got a model.
0: Yeah. Well, I, an argument that I really like, that I've seen you know, made it by a few different people. Carl Schrader is a Canadian science fiction writer, said it really well. He tweeted one time that uh, something along the lines of like, people would rather live in a dystopia they understand than a utopia they don't understand, right? They would they would rather choose that, that path. And I think that 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 is really true, right? We need to, um, I, even though I I think everyone understands that our current situation is untenable not everyone clearly, but.
1: So is that, so is, is that a rhyme with like, uh, depending on who you listen to, um, Frederick Jameson's, it's easier to imagine the end of, um, the world than it, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Is it like kind of a rhyme?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know the the way I think of it is that even if you know uh, our sort of current status quo is bad, right? The majority of people on the planet, most of whom are not in a good situation with this uh, status quo, right, are not the ones who are um, uh, whose you know prospects are are, are going to be improving, particularly in mm-hmm. the coming years, if, if climate change has its way and if capitalism has its way. Nonetheless, we all still get up every day and we, we have a way to uh, make it through the day to, to keep ourselves alive, to like we have a place until we don't, right? But then we stop having influence over things, right? Um, and th- that sense of like, okay, this is bad, but but I do know what my my spot is, right? I know who I am here. I know how I live if you're telling me you're going to improve things, you're going to come and you're going to shake up the whole system. How do I know that on the other side of that shakeup, there's still going to be a place for me, a place where I feel, uh, you know, that I'm kind of satisfied with my life that I can get up and face every day that, that uh, you know, I can find meaning in my experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we have to a little bit, this is where we need to to use the stories, right? That, that those can be really helpful um, that we can help people see these futures, not just as, you know, if I tell you, Oh, well, you know, the earth could be uninhabitable in a hundred years or could be uninhabitable like in your lifetime, yeah. teenager. Right. What, what are you going to do with that? Like, <laughs> but if I, if I can, sort of describe to you a couple different um, days that you might live, right? You get up, you, and this is what you you have for, for breakfast. And this is where you go and work. And this is how your boss treats you. And this is how long you've got to work. And, and this is where uh, you go after to relax and the, the options you have to entertain yourself or to like be with other people, right? I can lay out a few of those, you can start to make some normative choices yeah. about that. And I think we got to kind of do it from both angles, right? We, we've got to both kind of color in um, so that people realize like, oh man, like this, uh, this story about what it's, you know, what it's like to live in a town that gets hit by a superstorm, or what it's like when the water runs out like, you know these people don't seem that different from me like i can actually see uh this happening in my own uh experience yeah and oh that's not good and also we need to give people a sense of okay you know uh i was a little unsure about like you know the this about how we could possibly make decisions uh about our workplace and our economy without, without bosses and, and, uh, without, you know, private capitalists kind of controlling everything. But now that you've laid it out, I, I start to see that, uh, it wouldn't be so bad to go to a few meetings and try to hash these out with, with people. Right. And then my experience might be relevant and that this could be something that would, would feel satisfying.
1: Yeah. Do you think, so the things that operate in the, in, in that, in that um, caution and warning kind of post-normal zone, where there is no, with the bedrock of decision making, is is um, I guess to a certain degree, doesn't isn't isn't necessarily rational in the way that applied science would be, or even the way the the kind of um, I you know I'm trying to imagine like professional consultancy. Consultant who's in the middle is kind of like, well, I know some things from this world over here, and I also have a certain understanding of, of of the of the the practical challenges of the of the problem that you're trying to work through because I'm an expert in whatever hydrodynamics or whatever. You mentioned it in the afterward about where the project came from, how it how it came to be, which is which is a which is a, a bit unique, I think. Well, I mean, to a certain degree. And I'm curious to hear about that.
0: Orchard Storm started off as my master's thesis project, and kind of the, you know, I, I went into this sustainability program, wanting to do, wanting fiction to be a core part of, uh, you know, what I was doing. But you still have to do something that kind of feels like scholarly research. A looked around at a bunch of different ways of, of framing research and uh, one of them was something called practice research where uh, you sort of are acting both as a creative and as a scholar at the same time and you are uh, producing new knowledge by analyzing what a uh, sort of came of and and what you experienced during your own creative process. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder if I can write some climate fiction, which is kind of what I want to do anyways. And so that was kind of what I laid out, this like purely subjective formulation of research. And in the process of that, I started talking to, um, one of my like class instructors at the t- at the time, Sonia Klinsky, who's this brilliant climate politics climate justice scholar, she kind of turned me on to this set of scenarios called the shared socioeconomic pathways, and described how they were interlinked with other types of climate uh, models, like the representative concentrated pathways, and all these different the integrative uh, uh, assessment models. But the SSPs really stood out because uh, they sounded to me like science fiction stories, like climate fiction stories. Right? Um, you know, there's one in which everything is nice. There's one where it's the middle of the road. Then there's one which is like a higher quality scenario and one with the sort of explosive hypercapitalist growth. And one that's very dystopian. Just everything breaks down. And so, you know, I had, I at the time was doing a little bit of, Scenarios based writing for a project uh, with ASU Center for Science and the Imagination and, and Clark Miller, uh, who's I worked with and did a bunch of solar futures where we were sort of imagining the future of solar energy and, and had this a kind of workshop where we, we, we split up into uh, four groups. And each group had um, a, a science fiction writer, an artist. Uh, social scientist and engineer, and each one kind of got a corner of a quadrant, right? It was just sort of standard futurist quadrant about how solar energy was going to be deployed. So I just kind of started thinking in this mode and I was interested in the SSPs and had an opportunity to go to Europe and talk at a conference there about solar punk. So I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just jump on a train from Berlin to Vienna. Um, and visit some scholars who keep track of the SSPs uh, in an institution called uh, YASA, the International Institute for Advanced Systems Analysis, I think, something like that. And ended up getting lunch with a few of these YASA scholars and sort of talked about my project, how I was trying to think about... uh, writing about the SSPs, writing stories to illustrate the SSPs. And, and they had some really interesting thoughts. We kind of ended up discussing how you know, if, if you want to do this like an experiment, you need to eliminate a bunch of variables, you, you need to not just write one story for each scenario and maybe that and they're just separate stories, right? Like one set in this city, another set in that city, totally different characters. You actually wanna show how the choices that push us into each scenario, that how the, the timeline itself and, and the political formulation of that world has a like real impact on places and, and individual people, right? So, okay, this is this makes sense. What I'll do is I'll just tell one story five different ways, right? I'll set it in the same place, and I'll have the same characters and kind of like a same core event will happen. But depending on which timeline you end up in, you'll get nudged right into uh, a different way of reacting, a different experience, a different story. Uh, so that's kind of what I started thinking about. And then the opportunity came to go and attend uh, the COP, the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Commission on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, all these acronyms, right? Uh, but it's the global climate negotiations. And some some years they're very big, right? We get the Paris Accords, but they meet every year and just kind of keep the work going. So I I went to Poland as an observer uh, to Katowice in the heart of coal country and just got to like soak in the COP, which is this very unique institution of people trying to, save the planet and doing so kind of badly, but also it's the hardest thing human beings have ever tried to do. And it's not working, but for, you know, we're all trying to get it together. It's a place that I think produces in everyone kind of a lot of frustration, but also like interest and hope. And and so uh, and it's a very multifaceted place with just lots of different aspects. So that ended up being kind of the core of my project, right? What, what I decided to do was take the cop and and fracture it so that uh, show it how it turns out in each of these scenarios that are really about kind of global outcomes and um you know the i could get to the global stuff by showing kind of the terms of negotiation and and what is the what is the culture of this particularly international event so that was the genesis of the the stories themselves and and from there they just kind of uh a little bit wrote themselves i had a lot to say after visiting the cop and the scenarios are really generative and uh, it was just really fun and fascinating to get to take characters and remix them right so you know my protagonist my perspective character in the first story is a little bit of like the antagonist in the second story and you know they, they show each of these characters shows four characters shows up in each story but they're you know in one saga is an activist in another she's like an international pop star right and one luis is this like hustling kind of like trying to get into the climate business, like go getting entrepreneur. And in another, he's just a cab driver and another, he's like a sort of a gang leader in another. He's uh, uh, just sort of a soldier that gets, you know, killed in, in the street and we kind of don't ever get to hear his story. Um, so, sorry, sorry that I mean that a little bit of that is spoilers, but I, you know, I hope that uh, spoilers don't, uh, won't entirely unmake the, the pleasure of seeing these kinds of recombinations.
1: I kept thinking of like this is sort of like a choose your own adventure. And I think it's a great technique that you use.
0: Yeah, it. I've struggled a little bit to think of good analogs to uh, explain quite uh, quite what the technique is. I, one one might be that uh, that episode of the sitcom Community from Medial Chaos Theory where depending on who gets up to go get the pizza, the of different kinds of sort of, uh, I guess, character dynamics and like eventually disasters play out. Um, and that, that one's kind of got this like butterfly effect right. implication. Right. But uh, I think one of the advantages of using scenarios, particularly when we're talking about the climate is that, You know it i don't like the idea of writing either a dystopian climate fiction novel or a utopian one because both of those are live possibilities right and the dystopian stories can be demoralizing they can kind of feed our despair and our sense that it's already a done deal it's not every bit we do to help makes a big difference and the utopian stories, I don't actually think they lead us into complacency or anything like that, but I think doing a utopian story in the context of, of climate fiction in this sort of longer form can sometimes, unless you're very careful with it, miss fully conveying the danger mm. of the the crisis. And so that was really important to me. I, it's kind of like, um, I think Adam McKay after don't look up came out, was doing an interview and I'm talking about how he, he actually, after the fact, wished that he had released the movie with multiple endings, hmm. right? That, uh, you would go to the theater you'd turn on Netflix and some people would get shown a version in which, you know, the asteroid hits and everyone, uh, uh, and everyone dies. And some people would show the version in which the world comes together and fixes, you know, stops the asteroid, solves the problem. Some would, you know, maybe there were other ones, right. Cause, um, because, you know, and all of this is, is, uh, still kind of hanging in this kind of a Schrodinger's cat, uh, flux. Right.
1: Right. I wonder, was that even a possibility or was he just kind of like fantasizing about the possibility?
0: I think that was just him fantasizing, I, but it certainly would have been an interesting, I, I guess, an in, intervention into the the you know, usual way we receive and encounter yeah. movies. Like, you why, know, I think,
1: why uh, did I get that ending? Like, what is that? You know, like, there would have been it would have been definitely pretty provocative. <laughs>
0: really, of- really, like, adds a new dimension to like the water cooler discussion about. You know what? It, what I the Netflix it. show is, In right?
1: You're like, what? <laughs> what movie did you see? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, what kind of feedback have you gotten? I know. It, I know. It's it's just, been re- just recently dropped, but I'm just curious.
0: It's been really gracious so far. Like. You know, I've I've had some people email and say that, uh, you know, it really affected them. I had some really nice blurbs uh, from, you know, writers and scholars. Kim Stanley Robinson gave me a nice blurb. Um, Publishers Weekly liked it uh, enough, or at least they liked it enough that it's sort of an easily <laughs> excerptable mm-hmm. review and, and we can leave out the parts where like, well, this didn't work quite so well. And I think that's, you know... It's not um in in a lot of ways it's such a weird project that it's it's not gonna work hundred percent for everyone sorry, um, and it what
1: would what, what might be thought of as weird?
0: well, the structure is weird, having this kind of uh having a be fiction, but then not just sort of leaving it at at the end of the story and but having this like non fiction afterward where I dissect the 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 nature of the genre and how i see sort of situate myself and in it and how i see it as useful right that's having you know basically adding like a director's commentary at the end uh of a novel that's very unusual but the the intention was to make it a, a sort of a teaching tool
1: yeah uh you're referring to the afterword.
0: Yeah, the afterword and the introduction, right? There's a nonfiction introduction where they where I sort of explain a little bit about where things are going.
1: Yeah. Well that's that's what makes it um and that's why I wanted to talk about the where it came from as and so you you weren't just sitting with like an old Remington in in the woods. It's like you were in an academic pro- program. Yeah. And as I understand from you, how you just described it practice based. So like you're you're expected to almost like if you you're you know a studio studying studio art. Like you gotta you can't just write about the stuff. You gotta make something. You can't just think about it. You gotta practice what you're trying to develop. Is that right?
0: Well that was my approach to it, right? I mean plenty of other people
1: So the sustainability program of ASU was people generally if they're gonna write a thesis, it's not gonna be a novel.
0: No. Yeah I, I took a very unique tack, but um you know, what was important about being at ASU was that I, I found people who were willing to support that kind of project. Right. I had a great committee uh, that had some really interesting scholars and, and writers and, and uh, you know, Sonia, who I mentioned was on my committee, helped me go to cop, Matt Bell. This is great novelist. Uh, that was really helpful. And, um, Ron Broglio, Paul Hurt. These are people who've thought really deeply about, uh, intersections of of uh speculative types of endeavors like science fiction climate fiction and how we think about science how we think think about uh theory and scholarship so
1: yeah i i feel like the afterward um not not exclusive of anything and not to diminish the the incredible writing it feels like it can stand on its own it feels like that should be an essay that just hangs on its own that doesn't need to be something said after you've read all this, which I found, I, I thought it was great. I, I want to see it not just here. I also want to see it as a PDF or downloadable on Substack or medium or something.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, big parts of the argument in the afterward are ones that I've, I've made previously in, in essays. I wrote an essay for, um, uh, that, uh, the center for science and the imagination published called why climate fiction, um, where I kind of lay out one of my core arguments that I personally make about climate fiction, which is that uh, what we're really doing is trying to uh, pick up a different theory of social change that drives our speculation, right? That I I think we should talk, we should think about science fiction, not as fiction about the future, Mm -hmm. but as A fiction that speculates using a a a theory of social change that is driven by science and technology development right where you pick up we the stories are based around inventing a new thing or discovering a new scientific principle and then playing out the ramifications in society right and i think the reason the place where science uh where climate fiction becomes useful And where it's useful to distinguish between science fiction and climate fiction, as opposed to say, as some people have, that all science fiction should now be climate fiction. Right. If you're going to write about the future of humanity and you're not going to talk about climate change. You need to like there's something wrong there, like you've you've sort of missed, even if you're talking about a million years from now, uh, you need to somehow kind of explain this particular bottleneck we're trying to squeeze through. Um, the reason it's useful to give them kind of their own shelves is because we can start to think about the future of a different theory of, of what is going to be the key driver that makes people's lives what they are. Right. Maybe it's not going to be the new gadget. We invent the the next edition of the iPhone or the next app or the flying car or whatever. Maybe it's going to be, uh, the impacts of climate change and what we do about them. Right. So, yeah. Cause those have, you know, if we're just talking about how people are going to live their lives, you know, is the sort of the next, uh, the next denser, like microchip actually going to make a bigger difference than, you know, how hot it gets outside the asthma rates, like, whether or not your city floods, what your insurance prices are, whether your home value uh, completely falls apart because you're living in uh, on a, in a coastal area that's going to be swamped by uh, uh, sea level rise, right? All these things that are just kind of like determining where humans live, how they live, what they eat, right? Are so kind of the big the big factors in in Uh, thinking about the future. So, and there are probably other, there are other theories as well, right? I mean, you could, I saw someone on Twitter uh, yesterday or today asking, well, could we have like a housing fiction, right? If we can do climate fiction and that's about the climate crisis, why can't we do a speculative fiction that's about the housing crisis, right? That, That tries to play out this particular core driver of human life in you know 30 years
1: yeah and so and what and is the response to that like well that that is is it does it get down to like well that's a subset of climate fiction that's a uh, I, of
0: climate I, I mean fiction. the the response to that is like hell yeah like go write it like i'd i'd read that um i think it's uh know yeah, the more the more we can be a little more agnostic um and the more we can recognize the, uh, I think, very real fact that technology development is, is no longer entirely coupled to economic progress, right? I mean, I think I was uh, talking about this on Twitter the other day that, you know, there's that classic, we call it the alligator graph, right? Where it shows in the post-war period from like 1945, 1950, Wages and productivity both going up, right? In terms of like the value you create per an hour of your labor and the value you get paid for an hour of, of your labor, right? Amongst you know, working people, amongst the, the sort of wage laborers. And round about 1972, 1977, they diverge, right? Wages stay stagnant, they just kind of trickle along in terms of their, the buying power but the amount that like each worker is per, is contributing to our economy to our gdp in terms of value for every hour they work continues to go up very steadily right so it's like this alligator maw opening up and for me that's like a fundamental shift in uh, you know our, our our reality and how we have to think about um, the future. Right. And, and I think we, we do, I think it's there in a lot of dystopian fiction. It's, but I think, you know, that situation where technology can keep improving and people's lives don't necessarily get better as a result. Right. Um, People aren't getting richer as a result that like, that would actually be a very shocking thing for a lot of golden age sci-fi writers to hear. Um, And now, I think it's just sort of a, a base accepted fact and we have kind of a new generation of writers who are kind of coming to this problem being like, well, clearly we can't if we want to talk about the future, we can't just talk about what gets invented. right? We have to talk about the choices and uh, the cultural forces that get made about uh, that determine our politics and, and our economic systems, and this kind of thing, and now our climate as well cool oh this was really fun thanks Julian
1: yeah I'm glad you enjoyed it I enjoyed it as well good good talking to you Um, we'll get back to the other stuff soon cool yeah sounds good cool take care my friend peace
0: maybe it's not going to be the new gadget we invent the the next edition of the iPhone or the next app or the flying car or whatever maybe it's going to be uh, the impacts of climate change and what we do about them. We can start to think about the future of a different theory of of what is going to be the key driver that makes people's lives what they are. We're in an imagination battle. One axis is stakes and the other axis is uncertainty. One axis is stakes and the other axis is uncertainty. If you get far enough out on either one of those axes or you've got like, amount of both, you get into post-normal science. We should think about science fiction not as fiction about the future, but as a fiction that speculates using a a theory of social change, a fiction that speculates using a a theory of social change. Corporations are often hiring professional futurists. In court (laughs) astrologer kind of way, I'm Andrew Dana-Hudson, I'm a speculative fiction writer and a sustainability researcher. My uh, new book, Our Shared Storm, A Novel of Five Climate Futures, is uh, fresh off the presses from Fordham University Press.